This is the Muscles and Management Podcast, where we build your body and your business. Talking all things training, sports performance, and business for athletes and aspiring coaches to enhance your training and better your career. Muscles and Management is brought to you by Challenger Strength with your host, Jerry DeFilippo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 114 of the Muscles and Management podcast and another episode of Meathead Monday. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you have not already. I greatly appreciate it, as always. Uh, really helps kind of get the show some exposure and, uh, you know, push it up on the charts a little bit. So I appreciate you doing that. If you haven't already, it takes two seconds. Just run over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Uh, it really means a lot to me. With that said, um, a couple things. This week, obviously going to do another Q&A episode. If you follow me on social media, which I'm assuming you do if you listen, you saw that I posted a tweet about it uh, today or yesterday, I'm sorry, yesterday being Sunday. And I also posted, this is actually the first time I've done a Q&A on Instagram uh, on my story. And I was, it's actually pretty cool. I got about seven or eight really good questions, um, maybe even more. And I answered probably five or six of them. I want to save some of them and some of the DMs that I got on Twitter for next week. So I think I'm going to just do another q and I like doing Q&As on these episodes. Kind of makes it interactive with you guys and gives me something to talk about instead of me having to like, you know, drone on about a particular subject. I can cover some things. Um, but at the same time, I only like to keep it within like four to five questions so that I can like, you know, go a little more in depth on them and, you know, not make the episode any longer than a half hour. As I said, when I started these, I wanted to make them to the point. And helpful, uh, whereas the Wednesday episodes are a little longer. So I have some really good questions to get to. And, and like I said, I used that feature on Instagram on my story and I got some really good ones. I said that I would talk about those a little bit on my story and respond, but then also expand on them uh, on the show today. And I'm actually really pumped because there's some good topics, I think, some diverse topics as well that we're going to get into that'll be good for the show. Um, I, I want to say something pretty big that I wanted to talk about. The idea of you know, strength conditioning, sports performance, whatever you want to call it, or even sports, because you see it in like the baseball world, especially trying to peg um, one factor or one really specific factor to the success, uh, to, to being the, the be all end all of success in performance. Um, particularly in this case, when it comes to injury uh, reduction, you know, seeing a lot of injuries this year in the NFL, especially as the season has started, um, I, as you guys know, or I hope many of you know, I'm a big Giants fan, so uh, pretty big blow for us losing Saquon. Uh, I know the 49ers had a really rough day. We saw, I think, something, if I remember correctly, I saw like eight Achilles injuries in week one. Just really crazy. Um, you know, injuries obviously have, everyone always says like, oh, if the technology is better, why are they there are more injuries. I think some of it just is attributed to the fact that, um, you know, athletes are becoming more advanced and, and us as humans, like we are becoming um, more advanced and getting bigger, getting faster, getting stronger. And, and the more output um, there is that's involved in an athlete in their activity, the more likely they are to have something happen in terms of injury. And I think to say that we've gotten injuries to the point where they are with the level of athletes that we have and how fast they move and how dynamic they are, there's something to be said for that and just a really good job by um, all the teams all around the league in every sport. Um, you know, athletic trainers, sport coaches, strength coaches, they just a collaborative effort to, to make that happen is huge. Um, I think when you look at how it, it's like almost like if you have a Ferrari and you drive it, um, it's such a powerful and explosive vehicle and it's got such an intricate engine and there's, you know, as, as 
awesome as it is to see it perform at that level, there's a lot that needs to be kept up on it. And it's not a car you can take out and drive, you know, a, a couple hundred miles a week. Um, you know, you can beat up basically and not expect it to, to have some things go wrong. Um, you know, different than if you took like a Prius, let's just say, or just an all around like standard vehicle, like a Ford Fusion or something of that nature. Um, you could drive it a little more like those cars last with a few hundred thousand miles on them. I, I liken that to the idea of like these pro athletes, especially in the NFL, like these are some of the best athletes in the world. Um, the output they have, the power output they have, like the stresses that they endure when they make contact with the ground, the cuts they're making, like there was a lot that goes into that. And, uh, it's, it can be hard to completely mitigate injuries when you're dealing with athletes of that sort. We can do a lot to, to reduce the likelihood. Um, you know, and I'm gonna get into that a little bit, but it's really hard to totally just rid of them due to the, the way they move and how, um, you know, I guess you could say, powerful i mean it's a it's a a word i've used over and over again so far but they're just so powerful and it's a lot to to, uh kind of rein in and and it's just inevitable sometimes and i think my biggest beef is when people uh try to come out and think that there's one particular thing or they have the answer when it comes to reducing these you know the it doesn't take a genius to understand that with covid and the the changing nature of the preseason and no preseason games and practices and camps being different with schedules like Something of this was bound to happen. And I think a lot of it just comes from the fact of, you know, I've heard two thoughts. I've heard one thought being that, like, they pushed the guys a little too much because they had to get ready in a really short amount of time. I don't know if I buy that as much as the fact that I agree with the side that says, you know, they didn't have, they weren't exposed to enough high intensity, high volume, high speed activity leading into the season. And then they were kind of just, you know, hit the ground running and were thrown into it. And I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, it's like when you buy a new vehicle, like it has a break-in period, you can't just hammer the gas. Um, you know, you see it all the time with like, I'm a big boating person. You see it with boat engines and wave runners and things like you need to give the, the engine a little time to build up. These athletes, like, you know, you take somebody that, you know, runs a four four forty and is really explosive and strong and, you know, expose them to ground contacts in games. Like you have to understand something, these preseason games, like these guys are getting, you know, one quarter week one, two quarters week two, like maybe they're playing three quarters in week three and then getting a rest in week four. They're gradually building up and you can't always simulate that in practice or you can try to and maybe not do it the right way. And, and we're seeing some of that happen, I think, um, with these injuries. And then some of them are just bad luck as well. So I, I the reason I'm getting to all this long winded explanation is I just don't like the idea of some people trying to pencil or pinpoint one thing, maybe like saying like, I have the answer to this. I don't think that's fair uh, to the professionals and the staff and you don't know what goes on. I also think um, it, it's it's pretty ridiculous to try to narrow something as complex as an injury when there's so many variables that go into it with these high level athletes down to one thing. And this goes into a segue into my first question that I'm not going to spend too much time on, but um, I couldn't help myself sometimes. That I should probably avoid interactions with people like this, but I responded to I, – I hadn't heard of them up until like last week. These GOTA people, G-O-A-T-A. I think it's an acronym for greatest of all time athletes um, who apparently think that their be-all, end-all solution to like the way you turn your foot when you walk is going to just totally eradicate and prevent – these injuries, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, I couldn't help myself. And I started to troll the guy a little bit and asked him if Goto was the same as Bofa. Um, forgive my immaturity. I went to an all guy school. I just couldn't help myself. Um, 
I hope you, you guys know the Bofa joke, but it's like basically saying like Bofa needs nuts. Uh, I couldn't help myself just because I had seen them interact with a lot of people in the community and that a lot of people are kind of just rolling their eyes at them. So I figured it was okay to troll them a little bit. And they started going in and in and in on me and how I didn't understand. And I was training my athletes in a WOTA way, worst of all time, apparently. Um, but I got some intel from some some pretty big names in the industry who DM'd me when I, they saw me interact with them. were like, don't even waste your time, dude. It's just a waste of time. So I got a question from somebody for this week from John Lesser. I think Lesser is more is his, uh, his at name on Twitter. And he asked me what I thought about them. And I got to be honest with you, I don't know too much about what they do other than the fact that they think they could solve all injuries by like the way you turn your foot when you land from what I've seen. And I'm not going to waste much time on people like that. I'm not going to waste time on people that are commenting on threads of injuries saying like prevent these injuries and contact a GOTA trainer. Like it's just ridiculous. Um, and I don't really have a, a lot to say on people who think injuries can be um, mitigated or just done away with with the, you know, implementation of one specific thing when there's so many variables in between. So I wanted to start the show with the point of um, don't be naive enough to think one thing can change all of this because it's very, there's just so many factors involved. And to answer the question about what I think of those people, I would say my answer is anybody that thinks one particular thing can solve such a complex uh, dynamic, I think is just asking for trouble. So that's my opinion on that. So with that said, moving on from there, Um, some really good questions that I got. I think the biggest one that I wanted to get to is, uh, the first one being overcoming isometrics. So the question I got was, how do you include overcoming isos into your programming? What time of year, like what part of the workout? Um, basically like everything overcoming isometrics. This comes from Matt Ferruto, M Ferruto nine, uh, Matt, great question. So the biggest thing with overcoming isometrics, so let's just take a step back and explain what overcoming isometrics are. So overcoming isometrics are the idea of uh, basically exerting force on an immovable f- surface or object, so to speak. So uh, something as basic as like a bench press pushing the bar up into the pins where the rack's not going to move and you can exert maximum force, uh, recruiting maximal motor units, things like that. Uh, you know, setting up in a sprinter slash sprint stance, uh, two point stance slash split stance up against the wall and pressing into your front leg as hard as you possibly can to generate max force. Pulling, we've all seen this one, pulling the, um, the deadlift bar up into the pins on the rack in different ranges of motion for a maximum pull. Uh, we've done ones. I've also done the wall exercise with a lateral push where the athlete is, um, you know, sideways with their shoulder into the wall, working on more of that frontal plane expression of, uh, of force and power. Um, you know, you could go on and on with the list there. Another one we've done is I've had athletes put a safety bar on their back and press it into the pins of the rack to basically say, um, you know, you're in that sprinter start exerting force and recruiting motor units. So that's what an overcoming isometric is. And the idea behind the overcoming isometric is that you have this immovable surface or object to press into. So instead of the resistance coming from gravity of lifting weight, you're basically pressing or or, uh, exerting maximal force into this immovable object. And when you exert maximal force, you are recruiting motor units, um, you know, basically working that maximum force production and also improving the athlete's ability to recruit motor units, which as we know is pretty big for speed, uh, rate of force production and power, uh, related movements. So 
with that said, that's kind of how the skinny on and how they work. Uh, the question being, you know, how do I use them, right? I think the two biggest ways we use them. Number one, my biggest thing that I love about overcoming isometrics is the idea of being able to isolate certain or specific ranges of motion involved in movements we are trying to improve with sprinting, getting into that sprinter ISO position and pressing into the wall as hard as you can. You know, getting the athlete to feel loading a force with that limb and get them to get the feeling of recruiting the motor units needed to exert that all out force. I think it's, there, there's so much benefit to that. Another favorite of mine is getting them into the rack with the trap bar and having them pull up on the bar into the pins of the rack. You know, having the ability to differentiate the range of motion. If you're targeting, uh, the top portion of the range of motion, this is one that I love to use, and this is a good segue into how I use them. I love to use these with contrast training pairings when I'm preparing an athlete for peaking into going into a season. So like I said, the the press into the wall followed up by a sprint. So you're recruiting motor units and loading um, and exerting maximal force on that leg, and then you're sprinting on that leg for contrast training. Isolating the particular range of motion in the limb stiffness you would see in certain jumps or sprints. So, you know, Doing a, a, a overcoming ISO pull with a trap bar in the top, you know, third of uh, leg flexion, basically the legs are, are close to being fully extended, let's just say, um, you know, simulating the position they're going to be in when we contact the ground in jumps that have minimal uh, change in, in, in flexion in our legs, like, you know, depth jumps, I'm sorry, drop jumps with maximal stiffness on the ground. We're doing, you know, split stance variation on these deadlifts where when we sprint, we are expected to contact the ground with minimal bend in our knee and exerting as much force as possible. So we can really groove that position with the limited range of motion on the overcoming pull on the deadlift and parlay it into a sprint, right? So that's one of my uh, favorite ways to use it. The second way is you mentioned time of year. I think this is a really good one is Using it in season, if we're trying to limit the fatigue, the muscle fatigue, the late onset muscle soreness with athletes that can come up, you know, show up and sh- uh, show its face with eccentric loading. I think when we take something like the uh, overcoming ISO, we are getting that same benefit of recruiting motor units and building maximal force that we would try to get with heavier strength training, but we're ridding of that eccentric loading component, which could help us mitigate some soreness when we have athletes that have a lot of uh, miles on their body with their sport when they're in season. So those are the biggest ways that I like to use them and kind of how I think about using them and kind of what they involve. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, let's see. Next question here. Uh, all right, it's a good one. Uh, approaching training people with zero experience. So I wasn't sure, and let's see who this came from. So this came from... This came from Miguel Fernandez, Miguel dot nine dot underscore f99 on instagram miguel i wasn't positive whether you were asking this question because um you know you were looking for training people that had zero experience or if you yourself had zero experience you were trying to get in the industry so i'll cover both um if you have minimal experience as a coach my biggest piece of advice would be to say to not overdo it i tried that personally um you know you're going to need to be ready to adapt and change to the circumstances you're dealing with. I tried to be perfect and outline six months of programming for the very first team I was going to work with. 
and you soon realize that you get in the heat of battle, you get in the trenches, shit hits the fan, and nothing goes according to the way, exactly to the way you think you're going to be able to do it, and you have to be ready to be adjustable, and a program is only really as good as what you're able to implement with the number of athletes that you have, the situation you're in, the equipment you have access to, the space you have. Um, so if you have minimal experience, I think that's the, a big thing. And I also think to not you know, think you know everything. When you have minimal experience, it can seem at first to be really easy. Like, you know, oh, I don't know why these people have had such issues with this stuff, you know, for all these years, it seems pretty easy to me. And then you get exposed to working with a lot of athletes in a lot of different circumstances and how fast things change and um, how something you think will be successful won't be successful with everybody. And you can start to doubt yourself. I think if you set yourself you know, when you look at that Dunning-Kruger chart, we always talk about that, how, you know, you start out and you have the little, the least amount of experience and you think you know the most and then you kind of crater and you think you know nothing once you get a little bit of experience. If you can start your coaching uh, career and skip the part where you think you know everything and get right to the part where you know you don't know shit, I think you're going to be in a much better position than wasting time thinking you do know everything. So go in there with the idea that like as much as you think you've studied and as much as you think you know, you don't know anything. Even the biggest veterans in the industry are still answering questions to this day. And when you go in there with that mindset and have the desire to want to fill those gaps because you know they're there already and you're not naive to that, I think you're going to be you know way ahead of the game. So that'd be my advice. Um, if you're talking about having a client or athlete with minimal experience. So I think you need to find out what their goals are and just assume that they're starting at a really basic level. You could always assume that and build up. It's really could be dangerous if you assume that they can handle certain advanced things and they can't. I'd rather start from the other side and work my way up. Um, you know, understand that if they've never trained before, you're going to be able to accomplish a lot with basics. Um, you know, don't just change things. I think we're in part, we're at a point in the industry where customization and individualization is done just to say that they're doing it and to make it look better. The programming and the training look better than it actually is. And people are afraid to stick to something for several weeks or several months. If it's working, do not be afraid to do that. Um, and just be ready to teach. I think you're going to have to show them a lot. Um, they're going to, they're going to need to learn a lot of different things. I have patience in that regard and just be prepared that you're going to have to build habits. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day and you could spend a lot of time on the foundation at first and still get a lot of results. So that'd be my answer to that. So I think good question on there. Um, and I hope answering it in both ways was, was helpful. The next one comes from a former athlete of mine, Eric Schmidt. Um, how should I train in the off season compared to the in season? So this is a great question. And I think the biggest thing that I've realized when it comes to this is as much as I hate to say it, it really truly does depend on a lot of factors such as age, training age, how long you've been training, which is training age, um, you know, number of games each week, the number of days you have to train, things like that. Um, but with that said, I will tell you that if you have a lot to achieve physically, like if you're a young athlete who's never trained before and you need to make a lot of improvements and you have a lot to get done, I think the biggest get ahead type of mindset you can have that might separate you from some others who are trying to be too cautious during the in-season is to know that you can keep your foot on the gas a little more while you're at that younger age. And one, it's a matter of, of priority. So you just need to develop physically and you can't really afford to have four to six months a year where you don't train hard enough um, because you're quote unquote in season. You're just never going to make the, res- the the gains you need for the results that you need. And the other part of that is um, you know, just understanding that I used the example before of the Ford Fusion versus the Ferrari. 
you're not a Ferrari yet, so you don't need to, you know, put the kid gloves on as much as someone who is maybe 17, 18, 19, 20 years old or a pro athlete might need to. Um, recovery means less to you because your outputs are less. So you're not exerting as high of a level as some of these other older athletes are, which means you can kind of keep things going for a little longer and not need to be as cautious. So I will say that. Um, the second thing I would say was consider that you can still make gains with lower volume and load. So an example of this would be, you know, maintaining maximal speed in season. Let's say you are a more advanced athlete and you want to go a little lighter to keep your body healthy and to to preserve your performance when it comes to your, your sport. You can maintain qualities like speed, for example, with just low volume, uh, work, like, a couple sprints will get the job done when it comes to maintaining your speed. You don't need to run 10 of them, right? Two or three sprints, let's just say, in season will get the job done without overcooking you and leaving you susceptible to injury or lower performance when you go to your sport. This can also be the same thing with strength training. I can maintain maximal strength working at some max levels of my one rep max, let's just say, with a strength lift. I can work to 70, 75, 80% um, you know, 85% for one, like I can, I can expose myself to slightly lesser loads and still maintain that strength. And I think that's a big thing to remember too. Uh, The other thing is as well, when you get a little more advanced and you're working with advanced athletes, remember what I alluded to before, you can utilize overcoming isometrics to your benefit when it comes to maintaining strength without adding that eccentric stresses in season. The last one, I think this is the biggest tip as well, is to remember to pick and choose your spots. No season, unless you're like an MLB uh, athlete and you know you're playing almost every day with minimal off days or you're a NFL athlete when you know you have one game a week. Like when we're dealing with younger athletes, things are way less linear and, and predictable with schedules. So I think flexibility and adaptability with your schedule and knowing that you're going to have times where things are a little bit harder with sport and there's going to be more intense volume, more games, more practices, and maybe laying off a little bit uh, and pulling back the reins a little bit when that happens. And then knowing there are going to be times when you only have, let's say, my hockey guys have one game on a weekend. I could press it a little bit during the during the week to, to get some gains. Um, they might have four games the weekend after, and I would go a little bit lighter during the week. I think that adjustability has been one of the biggest things that I've learned in my career so far, um, you know, to, to be in tune with what the athletes are doing um, you know, in their sport and the fluctuations of activity week by week and use that information to make adjustments to your scheduling and what you're doing with them in the lifts. You know, have your steadfast goals and and, and section off things in your programming, like your your strength work, what's your goal going to be and, and what ranges or, or loads you're going to attempt to target. Um, you know, what your plyometrics and your sprints, what are your goals going to be? Uh, hypertrophy training, how are you going to attack that? Like separate all of that right? And then once you do that, you have a little bit of a, of a rough shell to it. Don't be married to that. Like have that shell so that you can fill in the blanks week by week, depending on what the athletes need versus, you know, you'll start to get anxious and feel like if you go away from the plan you laid out in the beginning that you're not having success, it's a recipe for disaster. So make sure you're adjustable, have a structure or a skeleton to guide you to be able to fill in the ligaments, the muscles, the skin, like the rest of the, the rest of the structure, um, each week and be willing to be able to start anew each week, depending on what the schedule is and how it changes. So that's my answer to that. Um, all right, let's get to one more before we wrap things up here. Let's see. All right. Um, ways to improve the force side of the curve. If my velocity side is good, but I'm not as for, I don't, exert force as well. So I think the first thing I would say to that is just to make sure that's actually true. 
Um, like don't base the, uh, the fact that like you're maybe a skinnier athlete, um, you know, who runs fast as to say, like, I don't exert force well because I've seen those athletes get on a, a vert mat and we test them and, you know, they actually don't have a big of that big of a gap between their, their static vertical and their counter movement vertical. Um, but I would say if it is the case that you need to get better at exerting force in your, in your power movements, like sprinting and jumping and things like that, um, the best way to get through that, and this is the most basic, but number one is if you're a young athlete and you aren't that strong, get strong, like get in the weight room, lift weights, you know, get your, let's say you pick a deadlift, get that number up. Let's say you pick a split squat, get that number up, whatever it is. Right. And then I think when it comes to maybe athletes that may have a good base of strength in, in, in basic movements, but still need to improve, uh, force, let's say, let's use sprinting as an example, uh, improving your quote unquote first step aka your ability to exert force from a static position heavy sled dragging can be a really effective way to get this done um you know from a raw force standpoint if you're really struggling with the raw force side of things and if you want to talk about maybe saying okay i need to get a little bit better at exerting force in the context of speed movements like sprints and jumps maybe a slightly lighter load when you sprint but yet a little still a little heavier so maybe like Thinking along the lines of the heaviest you can go where mechanics still stay, still have integrity, um, you know, can challenge you. The more more load behind you that you're pulling, the more force you need to exert in your strides, which thus builds your overall power. Same thing with jumps, same idea. Um, and I think if we can do those things, we can pull heavier loads, but in a speed sense and the mechanics are preserved and we do the thing, same thing with jumps. I think that can go a very long way in building, um, you know, your force production or force use in some of your speed movements. So uh, I hope that helps with that. I hope all those questions help. Um, I want to thank you guys for the activity today. There was a lot of questions asked and it was really cool to see the, the feedback on that. I did save some of these questions. I have a, you know, a few already and I will uh, put this out again on Twitter and uh, Instagram later this week. So you guys have the opportunity to ask me more. And we're going to keep rolling with uh, these, these Q and A's on the Meathead Mondays. I think they're really cool. So um, be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for this episode. Uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. And if you've I, listened, I hope you did enjoy it. As always, please give me feedback. You know, if I answer one of your questions and you have uh, further questions or you think it really did a good job of answering, let me know. I want to know how I'm doing so I can make these even better. As always, I appreciate the support from you guys. And I look forward to seeing you guys Wednesday with another episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Muscles and Management Podcast brought to you by Challenger Strength. I'm your host, Jared Filippo, signing off on the show that's changing the way we view training, sports performance, and business.